0: Welcome. I imagine, right now, you must be feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. You could say that. I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he hears because he is expecting to wake up. I've watched you, Neo. You do not use a computer like a tool, you use it like it was part of yourself. What you can do downloading podcasts is magic. It's not magic. But it is. We are trained in this world to accept only what is earth-based. As children, we look up at the sky with a sense of wonder. Adults only look down at the ground as they walk, forgetting the universe above them, which is why the younger a mind is, the easier it is to free. Free from what? From working life. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what working life is. You have to see it for yourself. How? Hold out your hands. You take the blue pill, and the story ends. You finish your degree, get a job, and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, and you stay in Wonderland. And I play you a podcast from the University of Manchester, which will tell you all about the universe. The pill you took is part of a trace program. It's going to make things sound... Difficult to say for a bit to strange.
1: strange. Say VBLI.
2: Right. Just relax me nice. i'm Tuning you
0: in. Um, we have... What, what is this? Radio 4? Um, i trying to I'm find the 31. signal. Stay calm. Oh, the words... They're crazy. <laughs> Almost there. I can't listen the woman's hour. Lock. I got you now.
1: The JuddCast, your indispensable guide to astronomy every month, with Nick Rattenbury, David Alt, Megan Argo, and Stuart Lowe. The JuddCast. June issue. Hello, and welcome to the June edition of the Juddcast. On this month's issue, we have an interview with Brother Guy Consolmagno, one of the Pope's astronomers, who will be giving us the Catholic Church's ideas on cosmology, and also the International Astronomical Union's ideas on Xena and other planetary bodies. We have Don Polacco of the Queen's University of Belfast, who will be talking about the Wide-Angle Search for Planets, or WASP as it's known. And of course we've got your favourites, The Night Sky with Ian Morrison, and Ask an Astronomer with Tim O'Brien. But before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo.
3: In the news this month. ESA's Venus Express spacecraft reaches its final orbit. The joint ESA-NASA solar and heliospheric observatory mission is extended to 2009. Site chosen for construction of the new large synoptic survey telescope, and Comet 73P continues its journey around the Sun. Launched on the 9th of November 2005, Venus Express achieved its final operational orbit on the 7th of May. The probe arrived at the planet in April after a five-month journey, and went into an elliptical orbit ranging from 330,000 kilometres down to just 400 kilometres above the surface at its closest. A series of burns carried out by both the craft's main engines and its manoeuvring thrusters during April and May, overseen by machine controllers at ESA's Space Operations Centre at Darmstadt in Germany, gradually nudged Venus Express into its final orbit, an ellipse which takes it between 250km and 66,000km above the planet. This final orbit takes the probe over both poles, with the pericenter, the point in the orbit at which the craft is closest to the planet, very close to Venus's north pole, The orbit takes 24 hours to complete, and allows the spacecraft to make detailed high-resolution observations near the North Pole, and to map the less well-known South Polar region for longer periods, but with slightly less detail. Since achieving orbit, the craft has been in the commissioning phase, where each instrument has been checked and tested by engineers on the Earth. If everything checks out, the science phase of the mission is due to begin on the 4th of June, when Venus Express will begin studying the surface, atmosphere and the planet's interaction with the solar wind. In May, new funding was announced which will enable SOHO, the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, a joint ESA and NASA mission, to continue operating for an extra two years beyond its intended lifetime. Launched in December 1995, SOHO has been monitoring the activity of our nearest star for over ten years. The spacecraft carries on board a collection of instruments designed to monitor the solar surface, both for sunspots and to map the magnetic field and the sun's outer atmosphere. Two of the instruments on board use a small disk to block out light from the disk of the sun itself, allowing them to detect the much more tenuous outer atmosphere, where dramatic solar flares and prominences can be seen regularly. The craft was intended to operate for 11 years, the length of one sunspot cycle and was due to cease operations in April 2007. This new funding will allow SOHO to continue to operate in conjunction with the new solar monitoring craft launching over the next two years, Japan's Solar Beam mission, ESA's proba 2 technology demonstrator, and NASA's Stereo mission later in 2006, and the Solar Dynamics Orbiter in 2008. Also this month, the site was chosen for the proposed Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, an 8.4-metre diameter telescope designed to be capable of surveying the entire sky every three nights. This telescope will enable measurements of events which occur on very short timescales and will allow astronomers to detect and follow so-called optical transient events, such as supernova explosions. The observations made by this telescope will provide time-lapse digital imaging of faint objects across the sky through the use of a sensitive CCD camera which will be capable of taking an image every 15 seconds, and collecting 15 terabytes of data each night. This data will be used to look for asteroids, monitor transient events, search for objects in the outer solar system, and, by surveying the entire sky, help astronomers investigating the nature of dark matter and dark energy. The site chosen for the telescope is a mountain peak in northern Chile selected after a comparison of the atmospheric seeing, a measure of how much an image fluctuates due to atmospheric turbulence, at a number of sites around the world. The decision was made after a comparison of the seeing, the number of clear nights per year, and the overall yearly weather patterns. The site chosen for the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope already hosts several other optical telescopes, including the 8-metre Gemini South. During May, Comet 73P, or Swashman-Rockman 3, continued to disintegrate as it passed by the Earth on its way around the Sun. There are now known to be over 40 fragments to this comet, the brightest of which were visible to Northern Hemisphere observers earlier in the month. Despite the comments of some people that one of the fragments was going to crash into the Atlantic Ocean on the 25th of May, causing a devastating tsunami, the closest fragment passed the Earth without incident at a distance of more than 11 million kilometres on the 12th of May, as predicted. There is, however, a possibility of meteors associated with this comet, occurring in early June 2006, due to previous orbits of the comet. Any meteors due to this comet will be seen to the right of the kite-shaped constellation of booties. More information on the possibility of seeing meteors, and where to send reports, can be found on the website of the Meteor section of the Society for Popular Astronomy. A link can be found on the Jodcast website. And finally... For anyone near to Jodrell Bank, there will be a guided walk around the Arboretum on the 14th of June. The tour will start at 11.30am and will be led by the Arboretum Curator, who will describe the wide variety of the Arboretum's collection.
1: Thanks very much for that, Megan, and I do heartily recommend going along and seeing the Arboretum, doing the Planet Trail and looking at all of the fantastic plants and animals that are out there. Now, Dr Don Polacco of the Queen's University of Belfast is involved with the Wide Angle Search for Planets, or WASP as it's called. And Nick caught up with him to find out what it is exactly that he does, and how he does it.
4: Thank you very much for coming along and talking to us today. Tell us a bit about WASP and how you're going to detect planets.
5: Well, the WASP project has been brought together by a number of UK-based scientists primarily. And the idea was that as planets go around their own stars, then they block out a bit of the light. So those of you that remember the the transit of Venus wouldn't know, but the Sun actually got slightly fainter during that time, about 1%.
4: We wouldn't have noticed all of a sudden that the Sun just got dimmer because the shadow of Venus was very, very small compared to the rest of the Sun. That's right.
5: But it's also similar to a total eclipse of the Sun, except less extreme. Mm. In the case of a total eclipse of the Sun, the Moon is the same size as the Sun, so it gets a lot darker. Now, if the moon was a lot further away, it would block out a small part of the sun's disk and we would see the sun get a little bit fainter. Well, the same thing happens in solar systems a long way from our own solar system. In which case, though, we're only sensitive, or we can only see, large planets moving across their star. Now, I should explain, we don't actually see the planet at all. But we do see, or we can at least in principle, detect light changing. So we're looking
4: at distant stars in the same way that we'll be looking at our own sun, for instance, looking for our own planet Venus passing yeah. between us and the sun. We detect, we want to see the little dip in light output from our own sun. That would be the transit of Venus. You're trying to do the same trick with stars out in our own galaxy.
5: Okay, yeah, that's, that is exactly right, Nick. The real problem we have is that we don't know which ones have got planets around them. And so while you can use various statistical methods so that you may expect maybe one in a thousand stars to have large planets, which we could in principle see, the fact is we don't know which one in advance has got planets. In the case of the WASP telescope, or the Super camera in La Palma, what we do is take images of large bits of the sky. They have thousands of stars on them, and then we analyze them with sophisticated software to try and detect which ones change by this tiny amount. And it's a very difficult thing to do. Just to give you an example, the amount of data we take would be the equivalent of the entire UK telephone directory every night. And tomorrow, another telephone directory. And then some poor sucker has to look through it.
4: (laughs) And try and find which stars suddenly just went down in brightness ever so slightly.
5: And unlike the telephone directory, they don't have labels to tell you which one's which. they all got the same name, except some of them are slightly different.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. So it's it's also in the name, the fact that you're looking at large patches of sky, looking at thousands of stars. WASP stands for?
5: Wide Angle Search for Planets.
4: Wide Angle Search for Planets. So, So tell us a bit about the telescope that's
5: doing this work. Okay, well, an ordinary telescope, which I'm sure most people have seen pictures of, will have a big lens and then have a long tube. And then an eye or a photographic detector at the end or a camera of some some sort. And that's all very well. But the longer the focus of the lens, the smaller the bit of sky you look at. So a large telescope today that could see a large bit of sky would see about an area of the sky the equivalent of the moon. Now for us, that's not acceptable. We need to see something that is much bigger than that. So we have very short focus lenses, which look like telephoto lenses. They're very high quality but they are effectively telephoto lenses.
4: So the sort of thing you, you could buy and put on your camera yourself for taking... You know, it, well, in fact,
5: fingers. most of our lenses came from eBay. Oh, really? Because, <laughs> because they, they became obsolete while we oh. were building the instrument, and we had to go all over the world to track them down. Right. But what makes us um, so good is that we have very expensive detectors on the end. Right. They're similar to um, digital cameras, except they're science-grade digital cameras. So instead of costing... A few hundred pounds, they cost £30,000 each. Right. And the in our case, what we do, we have multiple units like this. We have telephoto lenses with these detectors on, all on the same mounting. And so we can see a lot of sky. Mm-hmm. In fact, the telescope can monitor the whole of the sky in 30 minutes. Wow, that's, su-
4: uh, that's wide angle indeed, isn't it? That's the whole certain, sky in yeah, 30 minutes.
5: That is. I mean, um, half of our cameras at one time could see the whole of the constellation of Orion right. so it's a huge amount of data and it's a huge amount of sky
4: how many stars would be on the fraction of sky that you can see at
5: any one time well there would be many 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 thousands of stars however there's probably only about a million stars that we would be monitoring at any one time so uh,
4: they're the only ones that you actually notice any or you record their light well no in
5: actual fact um, from the first season we actually monitored the brightness of of nearly 7 million stars. Wow. However, only about a million of them were actually bright enough to do the experiment that we were trying to do.
4: So you're only, sensitive to, well, you're only sensitive to planets going around relatively bright stars?
5: Bright stars and big planets. But there's a reason for the bright stars, and that is part of the confirmation of these objects involves the use of the largest telescopes. And it's ironic, we have a very small telescope to find these and then a really large telescope to confirm them. Right. So to go much fainter would be pointless, because we could never confirm them.
4: Right. So you perhaps see something which you think might be a planet going around a, a bright star, and then you call up some folks at a larger telescope and tell them, can you please check this out and see?
5: If only it was that easy. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's a difficult game, because there are lots of things that can mimic these changes in brightness. And so we have to do a lot of um, almost detective work, we have to compare the brightnesses and the colours of these stars with catalogue values for them. And then we have to go and do a low-level sift, if you like, with a sort of medium-sized telescope to, to reject all the different kinds of objects that can mimic our variable stars.
4: What, what are you actually looking for for a transiting planet going around a bright star? It, I presume looks pretty much flat. The light coming out of the star is the same the whole time and all of a sudden the planet starts to go across the face of the star and the light from the star just seems to go down as the
5: planet walks out some of the light. The star will get fainter for about a two hour period by about 1%. About 1%. So 1%.
4: That's, percent. that's the level, that's the change. In yeah.
5: That's very small. That's tiny. I mean the atmospheric uh, variations are bigger than that. Mm. And so we have to use some quite tricky software to remove lots of trends in the data.
4: By atmospheric signals or, or alterations, that do, that's our own atmosphere, that's the atmosphere that's, of the sorry, Earth, yeah, ca- causing sort of fluctuations. Yeah. Mm. So that change of 1%, what size planet does that correspond to? Is that something like Venus, yeah. or is it Jupiter, or is it something bigger?
5: That is a Jupiter-sized planet around a solar-type star. Right. If you look at smaller stars than the Sun, then you could, in principle, see smaller planets. Um, to see Earth sized planets, you probably need to be above the atmosphere. Right. Because the Earth's atmosphere, like I said, induces these very small scale variations which hide the variation we're looking for. Mm. So, there is in fact a, a satellite going up in a couple of years that will do exactly that. It will look for very small variations. Right. Well, let's
4: talk about the Wasp Telescope, though. That's located where?
5: There are two, actually. There's two. There are two, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wasp is located. Superwasp is located in La Palma, right. and Wasp South, which is the other one, which is really a clone of the northern one, is located in South Africa. Okay. The reason most people don't know about them is it's a bit of a stealth project, Ooh. because most of the money is actually privately funded.
4: Oh right, well, that's interesting. Why? Yeah. Why? Why is it a secret though? I mean, why? Why shouldn't, shouldn't these people
5: want? It's not a secret. It's just that we. It's only over the last couple of years we've been applying centrally. And that's how most astronomers find out about the project. Because then they get to referee our proposals. But the reason for this was that when we originally tried to get money, people were very sceptical of the project. It's a very ambitious and a difficult project to do. Mm. And when money is short, you tend to give money for more certain projects. So if you look at what's going on, there's a lot of money going into big telescopes. But this is so novel and so radical. That uh, it's been difficult to get the money. It's easier now.
4: Where's the money come from? Can can you tell us where the money
5: comes from? Uh, some of it has come from blackmailing certain people, but uh, <laughs> and that's how
4: modern astronomy <laughs> is done. Everybody, is through blackmail. No.
5: Serious? No, um, well, I am actually no, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, to, to be to be fair, we did manage to get a small grant from the Research Council, people to start with. And then after that, we were fortunate to get some money from Queen's University and then the Open University, St Andrews University, and now Kiel right. University as well.
4: You mentioned that there are two telescopes, WASP and SuperWASP. Yeah. What makes SuperWASP
5: super? The reason Super Wasp is called SuperWASP is that originally we were building the WASP telescopes. And when we were trying to get the money from Queen's, uh, I was put on the spot as to, to say why this, ex- this new instrument we were going to build was going to be so much better than the other name, yeah. or the other instrument. And I was on the spot, so I had to think of a name, and it was SuperWASP. The reason we still call it that, as opposed to WASP North or something like that, is that within Queen's University and within the Canary Islands, it is known as SuperWASP. Right. But they are the same. <laughs> I just have to remember the, the jargon and the terminology. So I don't upset too many people. Of course. <laughs>
4: Let's think about um, the actual system of planets that you're going to be detecting with these telescopes. Now, the planet going around the star that you're observing, the transiting planet, has to be almost in line with us. That's true, right? I mean, because the, the star itself is so, so small, the planet has to be going between us and the background star.
5: Okay, well, um, let me say that... that. Um, When people first started discovering planets, one of the surprising things was that they were discovering large planets in very short orbits. And if you compare it to our solar system, it's quite different. If you look at our solar system, you've got large planets in orbits of many years, like Jupiter's 12-year orbit. You've got Mercury, the planet closest to the Sun, which is tiny and is in an 88-day orbit. So these planets we were discovering were really quite different. They're Jupiter-sized or bigger in periods of just a few days. So clearly there's either something very unusual about our solar system or we were just sensitive to these kinds of planets. Right. They're the easiest kinds of planets to discover. These large planets these close, large, to, yeah. close to their yeah. parent star. And to detect a transit, the, the further away the planet is from the star, the more unlikely the transit is to occur in the first place. So mm. that's why we find these objects. But the important thing about these objects is that because we know the plane of their orbit, because that's why they transit, we can actually use some geometry to discover lots of things about these planets individually, and then we can test models of their formation. Right.
4: So, what can you learn from the? What can you learn from what you observe? This little dip.
5: Yep. From the transit itself, you can des- you can determine the size of the planet. Right. You can then combine it with um, other studies to get the mass of the planet and therefore its density hmm.
4: so you know roughly pretty much how heavy it is, how large it is, therefore the density, therefore probably what it's made of, and therefore probably how it got made
5: the The difficulty is is understanding how they got there right because it is very difficult to make a jupiter sized planet very close to a hot star. Hmm. they tend to evaporate away.
4: It's one of the biggest problems currently facing That's right. our understanding of how planets are made, and certainly when we've discovered all these large planets close to their parent star, like you mentioned, it kind of confused a lot of people, didn't it? Uh, Absolutely,
5: and people then started developing models that would make the planets further out and then move them in mm. to the star, and some of them in some of these models move straight into the star and, and disappear. So there's a lot of
4: work to be done, and we need to find more planets. To get a, a, a wider range, I mean, uh, the, the planets we've found so far, most of the planets, these large planets close to the star, are unlike, as you say, our own solar system. So,
5: That's right. I mean, this is this is a new subject in astronomy, and we're very much in the discovery phase at the moment. And the observations, I should say, are all incredibly difficult, very, mm-hmm. very difficult. The variations we're looking for are very small. They're just not easy to see. But at some point, it will move... To one of trying to quantify what we 're seeing in a more physical way, so that we can test models,
4: well, that sounds good have you uh, are these telescopes operational currently? Are they getting their phone book of data every day yep. and you 're analyzing it? In pretty much real time, I suppose, because yeah. you need to see the information.
5: What I should say is that it took a long time to develop the software for these instruments.
4: You're looking for a 1% change. I mean, that's yeah. out of thousands of stars over the, most, of the, most of the sky, that's a, it's a terribly difficult job.
5: It, yeah, and especially when you think that things like electronics vary and you know, the sky is changing, the conditions are changing all the time. So it is a very difficult thing to detect. But we have several hundred actual candidates now. Of which maybe about 30 or 40 are really good candidates, and those objects are currently being followed up with the larger telescopes as we speak.
4: Right. So they're candidates. We're not 100% sure whether they're real planets or not, but you're going to check the, them out with bigger telescopes.
5: The the thing with this kind of experiment is that you can never be sure until they've been followed up. Mm. So uh, a WASP camera is only really good for detecting candidates, and then it needs to go to a big telescope to confirm them. The way this has worked so far is that people have done surveys with big telescopes and that takes an awful lot of very expensive big telescope time. This in principle is cheap and it finds you the ones that are the most interesting because they're the ones that you can fully um, solve with geometry.
4: Well, We wish you all the best of luck and thank you very much indeed for giving us the talk.
5: Thanks, we need it.
1: (laughs) Thank you Nick and Dr John Polacco of Queen's University of Belfast. Now, as some of you may or may not know, I work at the Think Tank Planetarium in Birmingham. And at the beginning of May, we had a very special visitor, Brother Guy Consolmagno, one of the Pope's astronomers. The talk itself will be available for download from the Think Tank website at www.thinktank.ac by video streaming. But I thought that the Jodcast needed... To answer all of those questions like, why does the Pope need an astronomer? And what is the Catholic Church's position on cosmology? So, I asked him myself. Here's the interview. So, welcome to the Jodcast, Brother Guy. Now, you are currently president of Commission 16, which is the commission on behalf of planets and moons with the International Astronomical Union. And one of the questions that our listeners would quite like to know is, what is the planetary status of Xena, that new planet that was discovered, and also uh, Pluto as well?
6: Well, there's two things we can say for certain. However many planets there are in the solar system, it's not nine. And the other thing we can say for certain is, whatever we're going to call UB313, it won't be Xena. Which is a shame, because it's, it's, it's kind of a charming name. The Really, the rest of the answer is we don't know. There was a a big committee put together about a year ago by the IAU, uh, chaired by an Englishman, uh, Ewan Williams, and we argued ferociously and came to no conclusion. The difficulty is that in some ways we don't know enough. We don't really know what's out there. We don't know where an intelligent place to draw the line is. Even since that committee met, I've changed my mind twice more in my own opinion. And I'm beginning to really like the idea that there is a difference between asteroids and moons that are rubble piles, where the only geology that occurs on them is impacts, versus coherent bodies that are big enough to maybe have differentiation and melting and other kinds of geological activity on them. If you use that as a definition, you could argue very convincingly that there's a boundary at about... uh, 10 to the 20 kilograms of mass and above that would be a planet. That being the case, not only would Pluto continue to be a planet and ub 313 and EL-61 and a, a handful, easily, another 10 of these Kuiper Belt objects but also Ceres and Vesta would qualify as planets. And so suddenly we'd have a solar system with two dozen planets or more. Now does this make people uncomfortable? There's no answer that won't make people uncomfortable. But any other obvious answer you'd come to, you suddenly realize there's a hole in it. For instance, let's just say there are eight really big guys and Pluto was a mistake. That's sort of the second most popular answer at this point. The trouble with that is we know there's this object called Sedna, which is in a very peculiar orbit, which must have been perturbed into that orbit, possibly by an object at... 100, 200 AU, which could be half the size of Mercury, and we wouldn't have seen it. And suddenly, if there is such an object, or two such objects, or five such objects, then there's no longer this nice clear break between the eight big guys and all the little guys. You also worry about what kind of definition can you come up with that's useful for looking at planets around other stars, where, again, you don't know if there's going to be a clean-cut break. I do think that the Kuiper Belt objects that are very big are a distinct breed of object compared to the Kuiper Belt objects that are smaller and distinct from the gas giants and distinct from the terrestrial planets. We have to come up with a new name for them. But we also have to come up with a decision fairly soon so that we can stop calling it Xena and come up with a name that fits either the rules for asteroids or the rules for planets. In fact, the IAU, having not gotten a good answer out of its first committee, has put together a second committee. And these are people who have more contact with the history of science, with uh, journalism, with and ultimately they're going to have to come up with an arbitrary choice. But it's not going to be the final answer.
1: Uh, isn't it the case, though, that uh, nomenclature, the the naming, what, what these things are, isn't actually important, whether we call them planets, planetoids, asteroids, or whatever? Surely it, we just need to know where they are, so that we can study them.
6: You'd think that. The longer you look into it, the more you realize that nomenclature and classification is a fundamental thing that science does, for some very practical reasons, besides figuring out how to name them. It tells you what tools you bring to study them. And that's why now I would argue that you'd classify things in terms of the tools you need. If you need to have a degree in geology to figure out their surfaces, they're a planet. If you don't, they're an asteroid. But knowing ahead of time what kind of object they are changes the way you think about the solar system. I can come up with a model for the solar system that explains the gas giants and everything else is just uh, trash left over. If I'm going to insist that I can also explain the terrestrial planets, I need a more sophisticated model. It really changes the way you ask the questions and the kind of questions you ask.
1: Thank you. So just coming back into what we know as the solar system, fairly classic question for you. What is your idea for life in the solar system? Uh, For example, on things like Europa, Enceladus, everything like that. Uh, What are our chances?
6: I think our chances are good. I would be delighted to find some sort of life someplace. Ten years ago, when they, they first saw that uh, meteorite from Mars that they thought might have evidence of life in it, my suspicion then was, in a hundred years, we'll know there was life on Mars, and it wasn't this. <laughs> and I think that's probably being borne out by what we're seeing. I think we're, we're changing a lot of our ideas about what life is, what life does to a planet. The things that I learned 25 years ago, the things that I taught 10 years ago, I would change now. And that's exciting. I'd say the best places to look for life now are probably um, Enceladus is certainly exciting. It's got liquid water right now. And that liquid water is in contact with the surface, which means not only that you can have sunlight. You still need sunlight even for deep ocean life, because even the stuff that's, that's hanging around the vents in, in the deep part of the ocean on Earth is still using some free oxygen in the water that it's getting from the top of the ocean. And as far as, you know, the only kind of life we know about now still needs some input from the sun to, to, to up, free up some kind of free oxygen, and it has that. When you've got contact with the surface, you can have currents then from the plasma around Saturn that create electrical currents within the oceans, which are going to be conductors because they're going to have dissolved minerals in them, and that can lead to heating and that can lead to the energy that gives you. I think it's a very exciting place to look for life. The other thing is it's a whole lot easier to get to than Europa because Europa is deep inside Jupiter's magnetic field and the plasma and the radiation problems of landing on Europa and surviving long enough to do any science aren't nearly as serious at Enceladus. So I'd say that's become, in a lot of people's minds, the number one place to go and look.
1: Going to your Catholic roots now. Firstly, why does the Pope need an astronomer? And secondly, what is the Pope's view on things like cosmology? Uh, we, We have a new Pope. Has the view of the universe changed in the time
6: between the popes? Well, first of all, the history of astronomy in the Church goes back to the reform of the calendar in 1582. And even earlier than that, where is astronomy studied? At universities. Who founded the universities and has run most of the universities in most of the world for most of our history? Astronomy was one of the four subjects that you had to master before you could go on to theology and philosophy. So that's certainly key. In the religions that believe in a creator God, specifically Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, these are also the cultures that have supported science. Because not only do you have a reason to believe that the universe will make sense because some nice God made it rather than just chaos, but you also have a way of convincing the powers that be that this is worth spending some money doing. And it's an issue that you know scientists face to this day. But the fact that the culture in general would see studying pure science for its own sake as a form of worship is what has fueled science throughout our history. The current pope has published on cosmology. He has published on his view of the universe. It's very congruent, actually, with what the previous pope had written. Both of them see that science is a good thing, that scientific knowledge is a good thing, that science has to be free to pursue its knowledge. And yet, at the same time, you can't think that science is the only thing there is. I had an interview with someone else who was talking about this, and he sort of came to the conclusion that, I know scientists who think that the world begins and ends in physics, and they're really boring people, Uh, which is telling you something. Life is more than that. But, on the other hand, I also know people who don't appreciate physics and don't know science, and they're just a little bit boring, too. So when it comes to the
1: Pope and,
6: and his views,
1: some people's view of the Catholic Church is that uh, you, you have thing, the papal infallibility, and uh, one question that, that came up was, if the Pope decided that all science was, was a bad thing, or that cosmology meant that the world was only 6,000 years old, where would that put you
6: as a scientist? Well, I'm I'm reminded of the old joke that of why Richard Dawkins could never be Pope, because then he would no longer be infallible. People don't understand what infallibility is. It is one of these things which is so carefully defined that you recognize, in fact, it's saying most of the time, most of the things the Pope says isn't and can't be infallible. The only things that a Pope can say that are considered infallible are issues of faith that have already been confirmed by the entire history of the church he can't come up with anything novel and different and change your mind guess what there are four members of the trinity now instead of three (laughs) not gonna fly so by definition the sorts of things you're talking about could not be infallible statements I think it was best put by John Paul II: truth doesn't contradict truth so The entire history of Christianity has been that when what we thought we understood is challenged by something new, you step back and say, oh, I guess I didn't understand it as well as I thought. And frankly, that's the way it works in science as well. Uh,
1: In your work as one of the papal astronomers, where do you actually do your observations? Where is your base of, of operation?
6: My base of operation is Castel Gandolfo, which is the Pope's summer home. And that's where the Vatican has its meteorite collection. And that's the core of my work, is working on meteorites, working out their physical structure, their density, their porosity, their strength, and what that tells us about what was going on when the meteorites were being formed four and a half billion years ago. On the other hand, I also do observational astronomy. We've got a number of telescopes in Castel Gandolfo that are pre-war, and they're beautiful telescopes, but the sky isn't so beautiful there anymore. So about 15 years ago, the Vatican allowed us permission to use their name to raise the money to build a new telescope in southern Arizona. And so for part of the year, I'm in southern Arizona using the world's first spin-cast mirror telescope. This is the technology that's going into the LBT, the Large Binocular Telescope, that has gone into the uh, MMT, which used to be the multi-mirror telescope, but it's now one massive 6.5-meter piece of glass part of that is we're in partnership with the University of Arizona. We've got offices physically on campus at the University of Arizona, which is a state university, curiously enough. And it means that through them we have access to all of the other telescopes of the University of Arizona and we have access, I have as an American citizen, to any of the telescopes supported by the National Science Foundation. Also, I collaborate with other people who can apply for telescope time, so I've used the uh, the Keck I've used the MMT. I've used telescopes on get Peak. But the one that I use the most is this, its small 1.8-meter piece of glass, but its focal length is also 1.8 meters. It is an F1 mirror, and it is a glorious mirror. One of the things that comes out of this is because it's such a fast telescope, you know how most telescopes have a secondary mirror, which is actually not flat. It has to be slightly curved, so it focuses off axis. Traditionally, because mirrors are pretty slow, you had a convex secondary, which is very difficult to test, very difficult to get precise. We actually have a light path where the light comes to a focus and goes beyond the focus before you have the secondary mirror, and the secondary mirror is concave. It's called Gregorian optics. Nobody has ever made such a large Gregorian telescope before as Chris Corbally, our uh, director in in Tucson, points out, we took a Gregorian chance when we built this telescope. But on the other hand, the mirror itself was made by, and I'm not making this up, Roger Angel. (laughs) So we've got a telescope made by an angel that has successfully taken a Gregorian chance. The result is between the, the wonderful optics and the very dark skies and the very still skies, because we're at uh, over 10,000 feet, it's well over 3,000 meters, we can outperform telescopes that are significantly larger, simply because we can focus finer. Without any adaptive optics, we regularly get point eight arc seconds. And that means that you know the things I look at are Kuiper Belt objects, which are pretty faint. We can see things down to 23rd magnitude in a five-minute exposure and, and do useful science on it.
1: That must be such a fantastic job.
6: I can't believe that I get paid to do this. It's, it's simply, uh, you know, when I entered the Jesuits, I was, already had been an astronomer. I was nearly 40 years old. I thought I would wind up spending the rest of my life teaching. But I took this vow of obedience. And so when they ordered me to go to Rome and eat that terrible Italian food and look at that boring scenery and play with these meteorites and then spend some time using the -the state-of-the-art telescope, I had to obey. You know, that's what obedience is all about. (laughs)
1: Uh, And finally, just got uh, time for one one last question. It's probably one you've been asked many times before, but if we encounter aliens uh, that have no concept
6: of religion or a creator god, how would that affect your faith? I would be fascinated. I would also be very surprised because I think any creature that has an intellect is able to ask questions about what's out there and has free will, the ability to do something about the questions it asks. That That's Thomas Aquinas' definition of a soul. And one of the questions we all ask is, where did we come from? What's this all about? Why is there something instead of nothing? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? These are questions that come with having an intellect and a free will. And we all come up with different answers. And within a religion, we all come up with different answers, and we have different answers at different times in our life. I can't help but think that they would also have the same sorts of questions, and if we were able to communicate at all, we'd learn a lot from each other. It's not so much that, would you proselytize, you couldn't help both learn and talk to. It's, the best parallel we have is when Westerners from Western Europe went to the other parts of the world and encountered other cultures. And yes, we had missionaries and talked to them, and, which meant that we were treating them as equals, but we also learned in an awful lot. And our culture has been enriched by the things we've learned from other cultures. I would hope the same thing would happen again, Mm, without the plagues and without the, (laughs) the, the other bad things that we also, as human beings, are capable of doing to each other. Brother Guy, thank you very much. It's been delightful to be here.
1: Apologies for some of the sound quality in that interview, but no apologies are needed for the next section of the program, and to introduce it, here's Nick.
4: It's time now for Ask an Astronomer with Dr. Tim O'Brien. Thanks for coming along and answering more questions. That's fine. All right, first question is, why is Mars red?
7: Okay, good question. Um, I don't know whether anybody's noticed whether Mars is red or not, but if you've ever seen Mars in the sky, um, bright planet, or an obvious, obvious thing in the sky, it does appear red. Um, remember that it's not mars itself that's shining it's the sun that shines on mars and we right. see light reflected from it but mm. yeah it definitely appears red, an orangey color
4: and it's a quite a common um observation that people make in the night sky if they're not familiar is what's that great big red thing yep. what's that red object yeah
7: that's right it's easy to point out mars to somebody you just say see that bright star looking thing over there see the one that looks red and they go oh yeah and you say that's mars and they're, they're quite happy it's the red planet that's what they've heard before mm. so actually the answer as to why it appears red is pretty simple um but perhaps somewhat surprising it's because it's rusty it's rusty yeah <laughs> so common garden rust the sort of stuff i used to get on my old car um <laughs> is uh, is what causes mars to mars to appear red so rust looks red um if you've seen it on your car you'll notice that uh, you know you know rust is basically it's an oxide of iron it's iron that's been uh, combined with oxygen in the atmosphere um, to make iron oxide uh, and iron oxide itself looks rusty so
4: okay well it's pretty simple the, but the interesting question which leads on from this is perhaps well we know that uh, iron rusts much more quickly in damp environments near mm-hmm. water so does that mean that this is evidence for mars at some stage being covered in water or at least having some more water in its atmosphere, a damp environment. Yeah, certainly that has been suggested. I mean, now Mars is a very dry, inhospitable
7: place and there's certainly no evidence for uh, liquid water on the surface of the Mars now, but there, there is evidence that there was liquid water on the surface of Mars in the past. So there's things like these um, dry river channels that look like sort of river deltas and so on um, that we've seen in these pictures of Mars from mm. the from the Mars landers even even relatively recently. Um, so yeah that has been used as, as a suggestion that basically the iron oxide that's uh on the surface of mars now it's basically uh in the soil in the sort of desert sands that cover mars um that that stems from from iron in the rocks that when the when mars the surface of mars was wet that rusted and then sort of erosion sort of winds spread that around over the surface of mars um, it's not the only explanation though there have been other suggestions that 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 iron, was, uh, that iron oxide and iron was brought via w- meteorites sort of mm. crashing onto the surface of, uh, uh, of Mars because there was some indication that there was more iron oxide in the soil um, than there was in the rocks. And so it wasn't clear right. that, uh, you know, it had come from the rocks in, into the soil. Maybe it was added to the soil by these meteorites. But anyway, I think, I think yeah, it's, it certainly uses a good piece of evidence, a good additional piece of evidence that Mars was wet in the past. Right. All right, our next question is, what are sunspots now i don't know whether anybody's seen pictures of sunspots um, but if you look at a, a photograph of the sun taken in, in white light what you see is a bright disc and quite often sort of scattered across it dotted around on its surface are these dark spots um known as sunspots you can actually see them yourselves you've got to be very very careful of course when you when you look at the sun because if you look at the sun in any way either just using your eyes or certainly using a a telescope or binoculars any sort of optical instrument if you look directly at the sun you will blind yourself so of course never you should never do that Um, but it's possible for example to use something like say a cheap pair of binoculars and uh, project the image of the sun onto a say a piece of white card Mm. Um, so you hold the binoculars taking care not to look through them of course at the sun and taking care not to allow anybody else to look through them of course Um, so you hold those and sort of you know directly towards the sun and then you put a piece of card behind them um and you can project an image onto the uh, onto the card on that image you will you can you know occasionally see these sunspots these dark spots
4: so what do these spots look like they're are they circular or are they elliptical mm. what, what mm. kind of shape are mm. they they are
7: the fairly they're fairly sort of they the are the, the, the roughly they're not circular um but they sort of there's usually rough edge so to are sort of irregular irregular blobs if you like mm. um if you if you look at them very close up um, they are quite small generally, so they're not—they uh, don't sort of cover, you know, a quarter of the sun's surface or anything like that. Right. Um, but they do vary in size. You can get occasionally get quite large sunspot groups, and in fact, um, you know, there's an interesting story associated with radio astronomy about a large sunspot group, which is dates back to the to the 1940s, to the early 1940s during the Second World War. Radio astronomy itself had on, only been around for almost 10 years by that time, since the first time anybody had discovered radio waves coming from space. So it was a, a totally new science. Uh, and during the war, there was obviously, there was a story about with the, these German battleships that were basically hauled up in a harbour in France and wanted to get back to a safe port in Germany. And to do that, they had to go down the English Channel. So what the Germans did was to jam the British radar stations on the south coast. Um, from across the channel to in, to enable these these battleships to escape, mm. um, and so the Brits were sort of very uh, conscious, very sensitive to the idea of radar, their radar being jammed. And a few weeks later, um, all their radio station uh, radar stations experienced some severe interference, which they uh, first interpreted as being some new method of jamming that the, the oh, Germans nice. had developed. So they were in a bit of a panic about it, and it was actually a guy called J. S. Hay who realized that the that actually the, the radio the interference that was that they were experiencing wasn't you know being generated by the Germans but in fact was coming from the sun right and he looked at a picture of the sun that had been taken at one of the observatories and there was a huge sunspot group on the surface of the sun and it was that that was generating the sort of static um, that was interfering with their signals
4: so that's interesting so there's some connection between sunspots and the a radio emission coming from from the sun why? So you know the Earth has a magnetic field, a north and a
7: south magnetic pole, uh, not quite in the same place as the as the north and south geographic poles. Um, and the sun also has a, has a magnetic north and south pole and a magnetic field that's sort of wound up inside it. And as the sun rotates, that magnetic field sort of gradually gets more and more wound up. Hmm. And it turns out we, you know, in a way that's still not that well understood, actually, um, this leads to something called the solar cycle, which is basically... A, something that was discovered in historical times which is that if you just took the trouble to look at a projected image of the sun every time it was clear and counted the number of sunspots and then plotted them on a graph where you plot the number of sunspots against time what you see is that it rises and falls with a period of about 11 years so every 11 years there's a large number of sunspots Mm. and in between you get a, a much reduced number of sunspots so we've just gone through the solar minimum right um where there's there's not very many sunspots and in another five and a half years time or so there'll be uh, a sunspot maximum and the sun's very active at that time um, and you know these sorts of events like these radio you know radiostatic for example would increase also phenomena like the aurora Aurora borealis and aurora australis northern and southern lights um, would be much more you'd be much more likely to see those because they're generated by particles from the sun sort of crashing into the, the earth's magnetic field and heading down to its north and south poles. So, um, so yeah, the the magnetic field is the sort of
4: crucial element that we that gives rise to sunspots. So, what's the connection between the the, the magnetic field and the sunspots themselves?
7: Yeah, it's it's actually that um, uh, what happens is it's a bit like uh, if you if you took say a rubber band or something and you twisted up a rubber band in your fingers, you can imagine this sort of it sort of pings out a loop occasionally mm. um, of elastic, and that's a very similar phenomenon to what we think happens with the with the sun as the as the magnetic field lines sort of Uh, poke through the solar surface and you get a sort of loop of magnetic field that pops through Um, and where that magnetic field sort of passes out of the solar surface and back into the solar surface um, those regions are actually slightly cooler than the surrounding regions now it turns out that the brightness of the uh, solar surface is 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 a very strongly dependent on its temperature the hotter the solar surface um, the brighter it appears so where these slightly cooler regions are the, the, the sunspot regions uh, they actually appear much darker than their surroundings, right. uh, and so when we look at the sun, we see this very bright surface with these dark regions embedded in it, mm. and they look very dark in comparison. Right. It turns out that actually they're not that dark intrinsically. If you were to take, if you could take hold of a sunspot and sort of drag it out of the sun and dump it in the middle of space somewhere all on its own, it would actually glow very brightly. Right. It would appear, appear as a bright object. It's only because it's sitting inside this even brighter object that makes yeah. it look dark
4: so what's roughly the difference in temperatures between the sunspot and the rest of the sun
7: yeah um a thousand degrees or so maybe a couple of thousand degrees something like that right. um so it's not a huge difference the, su- the surface of the sun is at a temperature of about uh, six thousand degrees mm. so it's still a very very hot object the sunspot right. itself is still very hot um, it's just the fact that it's a bit cooler than the surroundings means that it appears much
4: darker. Right. So it's just a relative thing. So it just appears to be dark because it's yeah. relatively yeah. cooler than the rest of the sun. That's right. What happens, you know, if you make these observations of sunspots over a period of, I don't know, days or something like that? Presumably they should move. I mean, the, the sun is a rotating mm. ball of gas. Mm. Uh, sunspots are a part of the, the, mm. the solar surface, so...
0: Mm
7: yeah no they um yeah they do move if you if you were to if you were able to look at sunspots sort of on consecutive days if you had nice clear weather and you could um you could map out their positions and you would see the same sunspots again and again day after day, but what would happen is they would gradually move across the face of the sun because the sun itself is spinning right so just like the earth rotates, the sun rotates in about a month it takes about a month for the sun to rotate around once, so you'll see the sunspots appear on the one side of the sun move across and then disappear around the. Around the back side of the Sun on the on the, on the opposite side um, the other thing about movement of sunspots is is associated with this solar cycle and sort of goes into trying to understand the origin of it is that sunspots at the beginning of the solar cycle sort of appear uh, uh, near uh, higher uh, latitudes um, so far closer to the poles of the Sun sort of north and south poles right. and then as the time progresses through the cycle they they, they are they appear at lower and lower latitudes down
4: nearer and nearer to the equator of the sun mm, right mm. so that i suppose the people who study the sun can use sunspots to learn a lot about uh, how the sun works yeah absolutely i mean it's, it's you know it's one of one of the main uh, one of the main
7: bits of evidence that has been used in the past to sort of try and understand the structure of the sun yeah
4: great stuff thanks very much okay
1: and if you want to ask your own questions to dr tim o'brien then all you need to do is go to the Jodcast website at www.jodcast.net and follow the links to the Ask an Astronomer page. Now, what to look out for in the June night sky. Here's Ian Morrison.
2: I think it has to be said that June is probably not the best month of the year for observing the heavens, basically because it never gets totally dark. We define astronomical twilight as the period between the sun sets and reaches down to 18 degrees below the horizon. At that point, there's no significant light from the sun in the sky. But in fact, from about May the 15th in Manchester through June, we don't actually get the sun getting that low. It actually is about 13 degrees below the northern horizon. So depending where you are in the UK, you'll see some light in the northern sky it never gets totally dark, but there are a couple of hours when it's pretty dark and if you're prepared either to get up very early or stay out very late then you can obviously observe the heavens. So what is there to see? Well, let's take a time of around 11 o'clock to the south we have a constellation another nice one called Hercules. To its right the constellation Bootes, with a very bright star called Arcturus. Between the two is a rather lovely arc of stars called Corona Borealis. Let's in fact have a look at Hercules. With binoculars you can see there's a central group of four stars. They form what is called the keystone. If you move from the lower star to the upper star on the right hand side of that keystone that's the westerly side then about two thirds of the way up you should see a little fuzzy glow as long as it's fairly dark, there's not too much moonlight and that's a wonderful globular cluster called M13 it's the finest globular cluster that we can see in the northern hemisphere now globular clusters of which there are about 150 orbiting the centre of our galaxy are very old, they were born at about the time the galaxy was born and contain a million or so stars in a relatively compact spheroidal distribution. And with a medium-sized telescope, M13 can look absolutely stunning. But you can still see it with a small telescope or with binoculars. Below Hercules is the rather blank area of sky, which is the constellation of Ophiuchus. There aren't really very many bright stars there, but below Ophiuchus we have the constellations of Sagittarius and Scorpius. Now they're really beautiful and they lie towards the center of their galaxy so it's a lovely, rich star field. The sad thing is that they're very low above our horizon in the south so we don't really get much of a chance to see them. If there's any good reason at all for going as far south as you can for a summer holiday, perhaps Trinidad or Tobago in the Caribbean, or let's say southern Turkey, where you can actually see these constellations significantly higher, then do take it, take some binoculars, there are lovely things you can see there. Now rising up in the east in June are the constellations of Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila. It's actually a very lovely skyscape, perhaps second only to the Orion and Taurus region that we see in the middle of winter. Cygnus the Swan has five bright stars making up a cross, sometimes called the Northern Cross, it's the body of the Swan, with outlying stars, the tips of its wings. Lyra is a very small constellation with a very bright star called Vega. And then lower down in the sky is Altair, the bright star of Aquila, the eagle. Now those three bright stars, Deneb, Lyra and Altair, make up what's called the Summer Triangle, and it's a very easy grouping to see in the sky both during the summer but also in fact in much of the autumn. Now there's another nice object you can pick up with binoculars. If you take the star Altair in Aquila and work your way up below Cygnus to Vega in Lyra, that's the right hand lower arm of that triangle, then about a third of the way up, you should see a very nice asterism or possibly even a cluster. It's called Brocky's Cluster and it looks like an upside down coat hanger and binoculars are absolutely ideal to look for it and you really smile when you see it. So go between Altair and Vega using a pair of binoculars about a third of the way and that's the coat hanger. Well, we do see some planets during the month, in fact Four planets are actually visible uh, after dark uh, and a further one first thing in the morning. During the first week of June, Mercury is visible just after sunset in the west-northwest down to the right of the two planets, Saturn and Mars. So, in fact, we have Saturn, then Mars, then Mercury forming a line at a fairly shallow angle to where the Sun has set. You need, in fact, to have a very good western horizon, perhaps try and get there as the Sun is setting, so you know where the Sun has set, and then look, and you should have a reasonable chance of seeing Mercury. That will set quite soon, and above it, we have Saturn and Mars. They're gradually getting closer together, and a little bit later in the month, the two, in fact, are in conjunction, On the 17th of June, they are literally half a degree apart and also very close to the beehive cluster in the constellation of Cancer. So they're well worth looking out for. Now to the south, after dark and gradually moving over to the west, is the planet Jupiter. You should, with a pair of binoculars, see it quite easily Maybe if they're reasonably large binoculars held very steadily, you might make out one or two of its moons But you certainly will see them with a small telescope and perhaps a hint of the banding and even possibly the great red spot So look out for Jupiter very bright in the south after sunset and Then if you get up very very early in the morning, you can see the planet Venus It rises an hour or so before the sun, so really it's sort of 3 o'clock in the morning, you've got to have a look for it in the east-northeast and it's shining at about magnitude 4, so it's pretty bright it will in fact on the 23rd of June be very close with the waning moon, that's a thin crescent moon and just below the lovely Pleiades cluster, that's in Taurus, so a nice skyscape, but you've got to get out pretty early to see it So, it may not be the best of months, but there are still some nice things to look for. Good hunting.
1: Thanks, Ian. And you can find out more of what's to see in the night sky from Ian's Night Sky page, which is linked from the main Jodcast page, but also from the Think Tank Planetarium podcast, which is my other podcast from Think Tank, the Birmingham Science Museum. So it just remains for me to thank Megan Argo, Stuart Lowe, Nick Rattenbury, Ian Morrison and Tim O'Brien, and also to you for downloading us, and I hope that you will join us again next month, where we will hopefully be doing a sound tour ...of the control room at Drodrell Bank, celebrating uh, six months of producing the Jodcast. The intro and outro are provided by a couple of my friends from DarkerProjects.com. Seth Adam was Morpheus, and Ellie Hirschman was Neo. And no attempt has been made to supersede or infringe any existing copyright relating to The Matrix, which of course remains the property of the Wachowski Brothers. Now, please just remember, before we leave, if you have any questions for Tim O'Brien or any comments about the show, any suggestions that you'd like to hear, then do get in touch with us via the website. That's www.jodcast.net. So, until next month, from everyone on the Jodcast, I wish you all the best, and goodbye.
0: It's me. I know you're out there. I know you're working as fast as you can to find me. I left working life for an hour to think about the stars, and I'll make sure other people find out about it, too. If we only look at the world and its petty, mindless structure of work and TV, we miss out on the vastness of the universe. People must know about the stars to know about who they are. The Jodcast is here.